one of the cultures that we're trying to cultivate here and pray for is a, a culture of deep discipleship. And what that means is learning to allow the good news of Jesus to transform not just the 10% of the iceberg that's above the surface, that we are really easy to let people know about, but as you probably know, how much percentage is below the surface? Well, simple math, right? I just said 10%, right? Anyways, but my point is, is like to allow the good news of Jesus to be transforming us deep underneath, which allows and needs other people to come into that. And so as we're looking at what it looks like to be disciples who go deep in our following of Jesus and our faith in the gospel, Nate and I are like, what better way than to actually look and study the one we're following, Jesus himself. And so we're going to start today a series uh, on the book of Matthew. Okay, I don't know how long this is going to take. Okay, <laughs> I just was thinking about it couple weeks ago when we began thinking through this, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, there's like the Sermon on the Mount, you familiar with that passage at all, and there's like 40 different categories, and we could take a sermon on each one of the Beatitudes, it could take us five years to get through the Sermon on the Mount, but we're going to try to do this, try to do like sections, Matthew uh, 1 through 4 over the next couple weeks and months, take a little break, come back and do 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, take a break, does that make sense? And so... But the goal is, is to follow Jesus, to get to know Jesus. And we've entitled the series called The Good News Kingdom, because one of the primary themes, if not the central theme of the book of Matthew, is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And it's helpful as we begin our Advent season to look at the, the birth of Jesus. And one of the major themes of Advent's is the theme of light. I don't know about you, uh, we, uh, we had to go around the table at our staff meeting this past week and talk about what we liked about the Christmas season and what we didn't like about the Christmas season. And what I don't like about the Christmas season is I'm generally defined and called the Grinch. Okay, I don't know how I get such a title, but that's what they call me, is I'm the Grinch. Any other Grinches in here with me? Oh, don't point at people. <laughs> Raise your... I'm just kidding. But yeah, I get defined as the Grinch. And in all of my Grinchness, I still like the holiday season because I like lights. Anyone else like lights? And, you know, I don't do the work to really go all out on my house, but I'm really thankful for the crazy ones who go all out on their house, right? And uh, driving in a neighborhood the other day, and it was like, it, it seemed like it became a contest. And it was insane, amazing, beautiful lights. I mean, they had lights on this tree. I'm not even lying. It was like 100 feet in the air. They had to get a lift from, you know, from Lowe's to get it. I don't, or I don't know how they did it. But it was just amazing to drive through this neighborhood. And when you see those lights, just ask yourself, what, how, do you, how's that, how do those lights make you feel? And what is it about those lights? I don't know if this is, you know, because of uh, my struggle and as I'm dealing with Shelly and losing her or I'm just getting old. I don't know what it is, but I'm learning more and more. My actual mood follows what it's like outside. It was dark yesterday in Drury, 
and my whole day was dark and dreary. It's bright out today, and I feel more energetic than I did yesterday. There is something about lights that draws us to it, that gives us hope, it gives us meaning, it gives us just joy in our life. And one of the major themes of Advent is light, light coming out of the darkness. And Jesus says in John chapter 1 that the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. And what I want us to see this morning is that in the beginning of the book of Matthew is that Jesus, as we say this Advent season, He is bringing light to the world. And that light is Himself, and because He is here, it is the kingdom of God. So if you're in Matthew, I don't know, I'm just going to do this, okay? Like, it may be unhelpful unless you're about to give birth and need names, but I'm going to read 42 names to you. Okay, we're going to read Matthew 1, 1 through 17, and uh, this is going to be our passage this morning. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. Okay, we're only a third of the way done. David was the father of Solomon, who had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, and Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of exile to Babylon. After the exile of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel is the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Elihud, and Elihud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. What a strange way to open a book, right? To just, you know, how do they teach you to introduce a sermon? Get people's interest. How do they teach you to write a book? You better have a good opening chapter or no one's going to what? Read the rest of the book. Okay, and here we have 42 names to open it. And probably if you're like me, you just skip to verse 18. <laughs> Yeah, don't, hopefully that's a good comment. You're not mocking Tolkien, because I'd have to come slap you. No, just kidding. But my point is, is like, this is a weird introduction, and, and what should we do with it? And this morning, there's a lot we can do with it, but this morning I just want to, in the following moments, just go over a couple things to highlight with you. 
that makes sense of why Matthew opens with simply 42 names. First of all, it is a, a genealogy that focuses on the fact that the Messiah himself has entered the world. You see twice in the beginning and at the end of that section the word Messiah, the anointed one, the one who's all Israel had put their hopes and, and the one Israel was waiting for. Matthew is now saying that individual, that sent one, that anointed one has actually come into the worlds. And one of the things I find interesting is that the early church did not proclaim, look what the world is coming to. They proclaimed, look what has come into the world. And I think this is needful in our day, in our minds, to stop in one sense bemoaning what this country has come to. And start putting our focus on the fact of who has actually entered into this story. The point is, is that we're not bemoaning what is happening as much as we should be celebrating that one has actually come into the world. Too many present day Christians are scared of what the world is coming to. They focus on the evil and direction of where things are headed and all of this we forget to put our focus that the Messiah has come into the world. The Messiah has come. The Messiah not only came 2,000 years ago, but He is still presently reigning over all authorities and over all powers and over all kingdoms. And the church, we need to be reminded this Advent season that we have one who has entered into the story who is Israel's Messiah. And Matthew 1-17 through is a genealogy. It's a list of names focusing on who this person is. And as you probably saw in verse 18, the author here, Matthew, says that this is divided into three sections. Three sections of 14 names. Now, a couple things we can just make comment here. When it says in the NIV, father of, father of, father of. Like in both Greek and Hebrew, that could be like father, grandfather, or great-grandfather. Does that make sense? It doesn't mean direct. There's 14 perfectly from every generation. In fact, what it is, it's just three sections of 14. But the question then is, why does Matthew make three sections? One, he's tracing Israel's history. You start in the very beginning with Abraham, and the first section of Israel's history is from Abraham to David, which is that section of, of God making a nation and forming it into what it was almost supposed to be under King David. And yet, because of their sin, now they're in a third section of where now they are being deported to Babylon. And then the final section are the last 400 years, the silent years, if you're not familiar, the Old Testament, Malachi, the last book ends around 400 B.C. before Jesus came. And 400 years later, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 is written. And so Matthew divides it up into these three sections. But then another reason is what the uh, old Jewish people called gematria. Okay? And what gematria is, is, for all of you people who like tidbits here, this is a fun one. Gematria is just this idea that you give numerical values to Hebrew letters. Okay? And... One way we could, a lot of commentators actually say this, is why is it 14 names in each section? Is because the name David, 
who is one of the prominent themes in this, when you add up his name, is actually 14. D has the number 4. V in Hebrew has number 6. And again, you use the second D and you get 14. And so what Matthew is doing is once again underscoring and highlighting the genealogy of Jesus coming from this son of David. Now, interestingly, all the names in the first two sections, Abraham to Zerubbabel, you can find in the Bible. The last 14, they're not in Scripture. We're not familiar who they are. There, there was no, as we'll see in a few minutes, there was no Jewish writer. There was no prophet. There was no God speaking to people in that time. And so we don't have a list of these people's names. But what we see is that the genealogy sets the tone for the book. It sets a tone that here comes the son of David, the one from Abraham, and you can trace his lineage. This is the one that we have been waiting for. This is the one who's going to bring light to our darkness. For Israel, when Matthew wrote this introduction and gave all of these names, it would immediately bring light in the midst of a great darkness. And we often think of the Jews living in darkness and Jesus coming in light in this general sense that they're living in sin and, and all this stuff, which is absolutely true. But Israel was in great despair. I don't know, it's hard for us to put this in the context because maybe some math people can help me a little better, but America has only been in existence for what, 240 years, 250 years, something like that, right? Okay, and can you imagine going 400 years and not hearing from your God? Like, we can't even fathom that. But from the time of Abraham to Moses, and you trace Israel's history, God always had prophets. He always had people speaking to the people. There was revelation. Books were being written. Scripture was given to us. And yet now for 400 years, it seemed as if God had abandoned Israel. Their own writings during this time says that there were no prophets. There was no voice from God. And for 400 years, God was silenced. And Israel did not hear. And so when Matthew can actually now say in this genealogy, there is hope, the one we've been waiting for, God has spoken. And He's spoken to us in sending the Messiah. But this list not only is highlighting the Messiah entering the world, but it shows us that the Messiah enters into a very specific context. The birth of the Messiah is set with an already existing story. Jesus' birth is taking place within something that is already being unfolded and unpacked. He did not just appear out of nowhere. He didn't just come and die on the cross for our sins so we can go to heaven. We don't need to make up some strange narrative of why Jesus came into the world. In fact, if we want to make sense of what Jesus came to do, we need to do it within the unfolding story in which he was born into. The only way you can make sense of your life is within a story, and the only way you can make sense of Jesus' life is within the story he was brought into. And I will say this again, that if you don't understand the story Jesus was brought into, guess who you misunderstand? And I don't care how many good things you have to say about Jesus, if they don't fit the story, 
in the context, the unfolding revelation that God has given us, if he doesn't fit in there, we don't get Jesus. And one of the ways that Matthew focuses on putting Jesus within the Old Testament story of which Jesus is going to come to fulfill is through his continued and repeated references to the Old Testament. <clears throat> I have on the screen here, Matthew uses 55 direct quotations. Okay, so what that means is like, Matthew will say, thus saith the Lord, and it's a direct quote from the Old Testament. 55 of them, that's over almost two a chapter. When you compare uh, the other three Gospels, Mark, Luke, and John, combined, they only have 65. Why do I highlight that? Not just to show you, Matthew's not better. Matthew is really rooting his story in this Old Testament context. In addition to explicit quotations, where there's 55 of these, there are potentially hundreds of allusions or echoes that's not word for word. Does that make sense? But it is like phrase for phrase, understanding that Matthew is rooting his letter, his book, in the Old Testament. Virtually, as we go through the next 17 years, going through the book of Matthew, virtually every major theological emphasis is reinforced with Old Testament supports which I find very intriguing as we go through Matthew. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Paul, they didn't make up new ideas about Jesus. What they did is they just understood the Old Testament so well that when Jesus showed up, they said, that makes sense of this, this, and this. This makes sense of everything we learned. They didn't get new revelation of Jesus. No, they could just put Jesus in the context of who he already was. And so why potentially Matthew... Why, Matthew, does he give such support compared to the other gospel accounts? Well, according to the uniform, this is like the consistent early church tradition, the author of this gospel was a man named Levi, or also a man named Matthew. He became a member of Jesus' band of twelve apostles. And any of you seen Chosen? He was not well looked upon early on in his life by Jewish people because he was a converted tax collector. Okay? Well, I won't use that. Well, it's kind of like... Yeah, we'll just leave that alone. We're not going to jump into <laughs> politics. Just, he was a bad guy. Okay? The Jewish people hated him because he went and joined the enemy and began to take money from the, from the Jewish people for the enemy. And because of his profession, Matthew or Levi was most likely featured among the very minor po uh, populace of people who could actually read and write. Does that make sense? Like because of his position, he was able to read and write. In fact, probably he got his position because he could read and write. And so even though he had gone to work, indirectly at least for the Roman forces, he remained Jewish. His elementary, his beginning education would have been completely Jewish, and he would have been very well steeped in the Old Testament Scriptures, and he could read the Scriptures, and he could write the Scriptures. And so Matthew probably, potentially became a scribe for the Jewish or Christian church. And Matthew, being literate, being well steeped in this Old Testament tradition, is wanting us to put Jesus in that story of who he is and what he came to do. 
But what this existing already tell, story already tells us is that Jesus came as the Messiah who would bring God's good news kingdom to earth. So as we close this morning, we see that this opening introduction, this genealogy is introducing us to the Messiah. It's locating us within a Jewish story that we need to make sense of Jesus within that Jewish story. And ultimately, it's going to show us that he brings good news. He brings the good news kingdom of heaven to earth. This idea of God's kingdom and the heaven's kingdom are littered throughout the book. Matthew, I think his most prominent theological phrase in the book of Matthew is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. If you want, he uses this phrase 55 times as well. Not only 55 Old Testament quotations, but 55 times he uses this phrase, the kingdom of God. Now for us at Redemption, as we go through Matthew, we want to have a very clear definition of what the kingdom of God is. I don't know if you know, if you're like me, there's like these Christian buzzwords that we kind of know what they are, but we don't know what they are. And one of those is the word kingdom. So there's kingdom that, kingdom this, kingdom living, kingdom giving, kingdom everything. But if we're to ask what is the kingdom, what are we going to say? You know, common answers. These aren't your answers. You have all the right answers. Common answers are like the kingdom is heaven. The kingdom is a place. Um, the kingdom is an ethic. Okay? Does the kingdom have a place? Already, but not yet. Yes. All right. Yeah. Does the kingdom have an ethic? Yes. But did Jesus just come to bring an ethic? No, what he came to involve an ethic. Did Jesus just come to have space? What he has, what he came to involve space. But if we could just really quickly and succinctly define the kingdom of God, is that the kingdom of God is God's reign. It is his authority, it is his power, it is his sovereignty. And when we say that Jesus is bringing God's kingdom, he is bringing God's reign that he, just as he rules everything in the universe from his control room in heaven, he is bringing that authority and that power and that sovereignty where? Here. That's what the Lord's Prayer is. Your will be done on earth as it is where? Who is bringing... Who has the authority? Who is the one who is actually going to bring the good news that God reigns here? That is Jesus. And this good news kingdom is good news because it includes all of us. It includes everyone. And one of the ways we see that it includes everyone and it's good news for everyone is when you look in this particular genealogy, there were four women highlighted. Did you see that? Do you know who those women were? Do you remember them? Tamar. Anyone remember who Tamar is? He might be the least well-known. Judah's daughter-in-law. Yep. Who gave herself not in a good way <laughs> to Judah. Okay. Acted as a prostitute. Rahab tricked him. Yep, tricked him into it. Absolutely. Rahab was a harlot. Ruth, this is the one that's kind of tricky, 
when she went and laid herself before Boaz, was she doing something culturally accustomed to a Gentile woman or to a Jewish woman? We're not sure. But either way, she was a Gentile previously, which I should have said Tamar is a Gentile, Rahab was a Gentile. And then you have finally Bathsheba, who also was a Gentile, who is known for her... I mean, why else do you know Bathsheba? Other than she's a rubber ducky. Okay? That's... Few of you get that, okay? But I mean, because of her adultery with David. What is fascinating to me, and we, there's so many different analogies and different reasons why people give to this, but I just want to actually just include all of them. Number one, it is very unique that Matthew includes women in this genealogy. Matthew is the one who also, when Jesus is risen from the dead, who does he give credit to the very first people who see Jesus? Women. Matthew, of, of all of the New Testament, might give the most prominence to women in the kingdom of God. In this new branch, this new band of people, of Christians, he gives prominence to women, and he begins that in the opening. And he's highlighting Gentiles in the sense that it's not just this Jewish band of people who are going to experience the light of the kingdom of God, but the, all the nations are going to come to experience this. And it's for all of those who are far, far from the kingdom of God, who give themselves in ways they shouldn't give them till, who sin in ways that we think are horrible. This good news of this good news kingdom is for everyone. It's for women, it's for men, it's for Gentiles, it's for Jews, it's for the self-righteous, it's for the immoral. And Jesus, I want you to know, has been sent to bring good news. He's been sent to bring the good news kingdom, not just to people out there generally of men, women, Gentile, Jew, immoral, self-righteous, but I want you to know this, that he was sent to bring light to you. There's darkness in you. And Jesus has been sent to dispel that darkness. We at times may feel like Isaiah, who Isaiah says, we look for light, but all I see is darkness. We look for brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like, I don't know if you're there, if you've been there, if Christmas, the holiday season, usually brings people really high or really low, right? And if the Christmas season is bringing you really low and you're looking for light and all you can find are shadows, Isaiah goes on to say this, Look up, for light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. He goes on to say, The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. You know, going back to, I don't know if you're like me, if the mood determines how you act and how you feel, can you imagine the glory of the brightness of God Himself shining upon you? And the joy that will radiate off of, the, off of Him to you? He says, your sun will never set again. The Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of sorrow will end. 
this Advent season as we begin to see that Jesus has come to bring the good news kingdom to us. He's bringing the lights into the darkness. I would just encourage us... Oh, I have the Isaiah passage, sorry. To invite Jesus, who has conquered the darkness as well as inviting us to allow Him to dispel the darkness of your life situations through His presence. Let's invite Jesus into the darkness that we experience. So as we were sitting around that table and having to share the good things and the bad things about Christmas, I also had to share that Christmas often gets hard because you, you, me, want Shelly to be there around the Christmas tree when I give the gifts out. One, they'd get better gifts. They'd be wrapped. You know, the tree would look better. But there's just like that, that darkness... That's there. And one of the things that I've been learning in all of that is when darkness comes upon us, when, when that despondency comes upon me, don't feel, I don't feel guilty about feeling that. Does that make sense? You don't have to feel guilty that you feel anxious or that you feel angry. You know why? That just means you're a human. What it is asking us is in that actual feeling of despondency, it is just an invitation to ask Jesus to be with us, to meet with us. And Advent is that season where we are, in a sense, pretending it's really dark, waiting for Christmas, for the light of the world to shine. And because He's already come, we have the opportunity to sit in our darkness and ask Jesus and His light to shine into us and invite Him into us so that we might actually feel the radiation of the joy of the glory of the light of God upon us. Spirit, help us this Advent season to be able in our highs and our lows and our joy, and our happiness, and our gladness, and in our sorrow, and our anxiety, and our depression, to be able to invite Jesus into that. Spirit, we need you as we do that to, to shine hope, and glory, and joy into us. We pray this Christmas season you do that for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.